0: Women Voters of the United States is a nonpartisan voter education organization encouraging informed active participation in government. It's the League's position that voting is a fundamental citizen right that must be guaranteed. Our programs will not necessarily present League positions, but the League wants to provide forums for community members and experts to educate us about various topics important to our democracy. Speaking of which, we have an important announcement. The League of Washtenaw County and uh, the League of Women Voters of Michigan oppose the secure my vote petition drive. That, that, that drive um, affects everybody's voting rights. There are here are a few of the reasons why or the ways. It eliminates the affidavit option if you don't meet ID requirements at the polls. It mandates that people disclose partial social, social security numbers when registering to vote and requires driver's license or state ID number or last four digits of social security number on absentee ballot applications, creating an identity theft risk. It prohibits election officials from sending or providing absentee ballot applications unless asked, and it bans funds from nonprofits to help local officials administer elections. This includes this means like your place of worship or your community group can't take water <laughs> to the polls to hand out when, if there are lines. It also means, um, almost catastrophically, local clerks will need to use our tax dollars to pay market rate, to use nonprofit spaces like schools, libraries, and places of worship as polling places. If adopted, this will be referendum proof. Michigan voters, we will not be able to repeal it. You can find out more at um, LWVMI.org. that's the League of Women Voters of Michigan.org to look at the position so you can see the position. Equally important is to tell our senators to support the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. It is required to save our democracy. It's now my pleasure to introduce my friend, and Lunch and Learn moderator, Shelly Shamfield.
1: Thanks, Teresa. Welcome everybody. And um, we are very excited about our presentation today, which I'm sure you will find as I did, uh, is very encouraging in terms of how much the organizations we're going to discuss have contributed to our Washtenaw County's um, water quality. The New York Times journalist David Pogue, in his book, How to Prepare for Climate Change, A Practical Guide to Surviving the Chaos, speaks of the Great Lakes states as ideally placed to weather the climate crisis because of their water resources and agricultural land. A recent Michigan Water Infrastructure Report underscores this assessment in these words, quote, Michigan has unparalleled freshwater resources, including 11,000 inland lakes, groundwater resources, and 36,000 miles of streams, wetlands, and beaches. This vast water network combined with our unique position within the Great Lakes, the world's largest freshwater system, provides exceptional opportunities. However, it also means that we have a great responsibility to ensure Michiganders have the healthiest water system in the world. The Huron River stretches a seemingly modest 130 miles of those 36,000, but considering its watershed covering over 900 square miles in densely populated southeastern Michigan, it has a huge impact. Here in Washtenaw County, it not only provides drinking water, but the county has seven of the watershed's 19 dams, providing lakes and streams for fishing, kayaking, canoeing, swimming, and other recreation. Yet, concerns abound. First, it is estimated that Michigan has lost 60% of its historical wetlands and Washtenaw County has lost 53%. Even as the wetlands, which keep water safe through natural filtering action and the preservation of wildlife habitat have shrunk, the last 70 years have seen precipitation increase by 14% across the Great Lakes region. Major storms occur 35% more often, a major cause of flooding, Washtenaw County alone has experienced several storms in the last 20 years that have led to sewer overflows and significant home damage. A second problem is pollution. As aging infrastructure takes its toll in Flint and Benton Harbor in the form of lead content in drinking water, in many parts of the state PFAS contamination is a serious and growing problem. In Washtenaw, once declining PFAS contamination is rising again, raising concern about drinking water quality and requiring recommendations against fish consumption and warnings to keep pets and humans away from brown foam on the river's surface. Clearly, We can't take our water's quality for granted. Here in Washtenaw County, we are fortunate to have two organizations that over many decades have worked hard to preserve the Huron River and surrounding lands. The Huron River Watershed Council's roots go back to 1956 when drought caused water shortages in the Detroit metro area, dramatically illustrating the need for water resource use planning to match the demands of growth. In 1965, 17 governmental units submitted a petition to the Michigan Water Resources Commission to establish the HRWC. Since then, the organization has authored significant scientific reports on water quality related topics. It provides a place for citizens, businesses, and government where they can come together to work to protect the river, It has also, among its many education activities, established a volunteer river monitoring program that serves as a standard and model for watershed stewardship. The Land Legacy Conservancy, founded in 1971 as the Washtenaw Land Conservancy, changed its name in 2009 when it became the first accredited, among the first accredited land trusts in the United States. Its beginnings arose from the realization that government ownership of natural lands and parks was only part of the solution to the need for places where citizens could seek solitude and refuge in nature. The organization has protected over 10,000 acres of land, both public and private, often working with organizations such as the HRWC, it has preserved open water and wetlands and currently manages seven public and many private conservation easements. We are fortunate to have three passionate activists for water and land resources, representing both organizations with us today. Chris Olson joined the Huron River Watershed Council in 1992, specializing in geographic information system analysis, landscape ecology, and local land use planning and ordinance development. Chris works with local governments and land protection organizations on promoting land use policies that protect the watershed. She also trains residents to become, in their, become involved in their local government planning efforts. Chris earned two masters of science degrees at the University of Michigan in resource ecology and natural resource policy. Janet Kahn has volunteered for the HRWC since the mid nineties. Currently, she coordinates a school outreach program to help students, students learn more about keeping our watershed healthy. Before retirement, she was the Plymouth Canton Community Schools math science coordinator. And prior to that, she was the science and environmental education consultant for the Ann Arbor Public Schools. Diana Kern joined the Legacy Land Conservancy in 2019, bringing extensive executive leadership background and a passion for nonprofit management, fundraising and governance. She has lived in Michigan for 50 years and farms, farming, rural heritage, and natural spaces were part of her life. Diana has served on numerous nonprofit boards, committees, and task forces over the years, including the all-volunteer group that raised over 1.6 million to fund the Ann Arbor Skate Park at Veterans Memorial Park. Currently, she serves as a board member for the ARC and is a member Of the Ann Arbor Host Lions Club. When not working on land conservation issues, she can be found bird watching, enjoying friends and family, and listening to music. Welcome to all of you. Chris, over to you.
2: All right, thanks so much for that introduction. Okay, Uh, well good afternoon, right? It's afternoon. (laughs) I'm in Oklahoma right now where it's, I guess it's still morning. But good afternoon, thanks for inviting me to join you today. Uh, It's my pleasure to be here and to share the story of our river. Um, I'm a watershed ecologist at the Huron River Watershed Council. And I've been there since 1992, as as you said, and I've lived in Michigan my whole life, more or less, and I'm passionate about water protection. So I'll be sharing my presentation with you and then I've got slides and then we're gonna be taking questions, I believe at the end. The Huron River Watershed Council is Uh, your local home water organization, where research and education nonprofit founded more than 50 years ago, and we protect and restore the river for healthy and vibrant communities. We bridge political boundaries by building partnerships among communities, residents, and businesses in the watershed. So we have a staff of 14, and um, we also have more than a thousand members and 500 volunteers. And Janet's gonna talk about some of that activity um, that really power our work. Okay, so what is a watershed? We'll just start right at the beginning. Um, A watershed is made up of all the land, creeks and streams that uh, that drain down into a water body. And that includes lakes, wetlands, groundwater, and really everywhere in your neighborhood uh, drains eventually to the Huron River. Um, so we're focused on this area of about 900 square miles, and it's in the Lake Erie Basin, so everything flows into Lake Erie, uh, and it flows, like you said, for 125 miles. And uh, What we've got important in my work is that it flows through seven different counties, 63 different local governments, and uh, is home to 650,000 or so people. Um, And a third of the river is afforded special protections from development via Michigan's Natural Rivers Program. Um, And so we're home to a rich array of animal and plant life including over 90 species of fish and 34 species of reptiles and amphibians. Many of those are state and federal protected species. So there's a lot of biodiversity in our little watershed. Um, So we're the country's only catch and release smallmouth bass fishery, um, which we have on the river, And we have extensive public access to the river and in the uh, era of COVID, we've really seen this increase. Um, We have lots of public lands in our watershed, especially for Southeast Michigan, it's really, um, we have two of the largest state parks. If you put Waterloo and Pikini Recreation Area together, it's mix up the largest state park in the whole state, which is pretty amazing when you consider how, we usually consider up North as being where you go to be out in nature. Um, But we have 10 total state parks and then also 10 metro parks. And those are all within, uh, you know, along the river itself. The Watershed Council has dozens of projects and programs. Um, We're probably best known for our field monitoring programs, our public education, and our land use planning and protection programs. And we also are, um, the Huron River itself has been designated as a natural water, national water trail. Um, and all of our work is based on the sound science that we glean from this. These, but this volunteer-led river monitoring program. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about those monitoring programs. So that includes our biological monitoring program. So um, this is you may have heard of our winter stonefly search or our spring and fall river roundup, where we collect river bugs. Uh, called macroinvertebrates, but they're basically the insects that live in the river. Um, they are sensitive to changes in water quality and habitat. And so they tell us a lot about the river system. So, three times a year, um, our volunteers head out to about 70 different sites on all the different creeks and in the river throughout the watershed. And they work in teams to collect and count these river bugs. Um, and we can tell how well the water quality in any given area is doing by what we find there. And we're heading into the 29th year of this program. And the data we've collected allows us um, to look at long-term trends in river health over time. And it also gives us opportunities to identify immediate problems and work with local and state officials to address those problems the other big monitoring program we have has to do with water quality so this is chemistry and flow of the river itself and the creeks so we have uh, volunteers head out to sites on creeks and in the river and they take flow measurements and collect water samples um, over the course of spring summer and the fall and we look at water quality indicators like phosphorus Uh, E. coli sediment and other things and that helps us understand impacts of the river from polluted stormwater runoff and so we're looking at both what is in the water but also um, in the volume the volume of water so how much water is flowing down the creek. Um, Another volunteer opportunity which is uh, something that I work on is our natural areas assessment program and so we've mapped all the remaining natural areas in the watershed and our long-term goal here is to do a physical site assessment of the of many of them. It says here in my notes all of them. I don't think we will be able to walk around on all of the natural areas in the watershed. It's about two hundred and forty-six thousand acres. But anyways, <laughs> um, our volunteers is it again it's a volunteer-driven uh, program, and we visit these areas and we look for again water quality indicators. So does it? Is there a wetland? What kind of wetland is it? Um, is there um, Certain kinds of plants that, again, like with the insects, certain kinds of plants can indicate the quality, the ecological quality of the site. Uh, We look at the size of the trees. What are the kinds of invasive species we find on the site? If there's any wildlife there, we certainly take note of that. And so this assessment helps our partners, our land conservancies and our local governments decide where to prioritize land protection projects. So we only have so much money and so much political will to to outright protect these important natural areas. So we want to be able to spend our money wisely. So in a state like Michigan, where water seems plentiful, it's easy to take for granted all of the services that rivers provide. So the Huron River system is arguably the most prominent natural feature in the area. Uh, Given that we have these great recreational benefits, it impacts property values. City of Ann Arbor uh, gets its drinking water from the Huron River, so it's providing drinking water to to the City of Ann Arbor, and also the groundwater in the watershed is providing drinking water really to all the rest of the residents of the watershed. And then the river also feeds, as I said, Lake Erie, and then that supplies drinking water to more than 11 million people. Uh, The river wasn't always this uh, beautiful recreation destination, um, communities sprung up on the riverbanks with little regard to impacts of the river. Back in the olden days, um, so these photos from eight, the 1800s show the river in Ann Arbor prior to things like the Clean Water Act um, and prior to you know when we had an understanding of of how we had impacts on water quality. So this is Lower Town. This is where our um, where Argo. Argo Pond and our offices are now located. Uh, and then this is a view from Depot Street to the Kellogg Eye Center. If you can kind of visualize what that looks like now, that's, there's the railroad there. Shows slaughterhouses right on the river. So um, we even have news accounts of in the 60s how water would, the water in the river would change colors depending on which businesses were dumping what waste into the river. Um, And so now jump ahead to present and with local, state and federal protections and the educated community that we have, we have a cleaner Huron River um, that we can and we can celebrate that river. And that's that's one of the reasons why we were able to get be one of the first designated national water trails in the state of Michigan. But we still have major threats to the water, which I've kind of um, implicated already. We've got uh, land use threats, so loss of natural areas. Uh, and an increase in infrastructure from development. So as we turn our formerly rural areas, farmland and and forest lands into urban and suburban areas, we lose that habitat. Um, The habitat that remains becomes very fragmented, right? And then pollution increases. We get erratic flows in the river and water uh, becomes warmer in the river. And I'll talk about that a little bit better, a little bit more as well. Uh, So we also see hydrological changes. There's 98 dams and lake level control structures of some kind on the Huron and it's, all of its tributaries. 19 of them are on the main stem of the river. Uh, and dams alter the way uh, entire river system functions. So our, our Huron River is really uh, not functioning in the way it was you know, before we built all those dams. We also have non-point source pollution. So this is, in my um, point of view, this is the biggest threat the Huron River faces now. The Clean Water Act was able to put in lots of regulations that, that really um, stopped that sort of changing of the color of the river that I mentioned, right? So from, so factories and wastewater treatment plants, they, there were a lot of controls put on those, but but the kind of pollution that everyday life kind of causes. So whenever it rains, water just flowing off of the pavement. And when we put fertilizers on the lawn, the next time it rains, that all goes into the river. Um, so things like that, that this that pollution that, that comes from every one of us, and we can't really it doesn't come from any one point. That's why it's called that. That is to me the biggest problem we have right now. We also have, you mentioned PFAS. We also have legacy. We call that legacy pollution. So from all of the different sort of products we've used, um, you know, Better Life Through Chemistry, uh, we're beginning to see a lot of them are having impacts on water quality and on human health. So so we have uh, PFAS uh, in, back in the 70s, you may remember PCBs uh, were a problem and dioxin and, and those things are, you know, a lot of those are still in the water or they're kind of stuck in the sediment. They, they filter down into the sediment. So, so we still have some of those legacy pollution problems and then what we call emerging contaminants. Um, where we're discovering, you know, we thought a chemical was either safe or maybe we didn't look too closely at it before we started using it. it it's in everything, so PFAS is in everything. We have another problem called microplastics, which um, the Huron River, the USGS did, a, did a, a research project and found that the Huron River – is one of the most, um, I don't know if I'd say contaminated because we still don't know what the impacts of it is, but um, microplastics are at very high levels in the Huron River. And it comes from things like this fleece sweater that I'm wearing. Um, And so it's pretty. It's unknown what the impacts of those are yet, but those are the emerging contaminants. The other big threat, of course, um, and, and you mentioned that at the beginning was, is climate change, we see impacts from climate change really exacerbating the impacts of the threats I just listed. So the extreme heat, we see just basically the temperature in the atmosphere is rising. That causes uh, more extreme storms because you've just got more energy in the atmosphere. So we've seen more extreme storms. Um, Temperature is rising um, over the last 30 years and we're gonna see that continue to rise. Uh, and so one of the biggest threats I think to our watershed is is gonna be the extreme sort of uh, temperatures um, causing those, that flooding and that causes more erosion. Um, and also there is gonna be a change in even the ecology of what can live in the river. So some of the fish species that, um, that are in a river now are gonna be moving further north. So just to take a closer look at uh, what happens in uh, a, uh, it, to the creek when you develop it? So, um, um, what it's like in a creek? Let's say you're standing in a creek for some reason, and it rains. So, what's happening to all that rain is that it it filters down into the into the ground very slowly because uh, trees intercept the rain, uh, prairie plants intercept it, uh, native grasses and native plants have tend to have longer root systems. So the rain goes into the soils and it is absorbed there. And it takes a long time for that rain to reach the the creek. Uh, When you're partially developed, that uh, graph gets a little steeper. So uh, you've got rooftops now and some roads and lawns that don't necessarily absorb the rain. And that rain just kind of runs more directly into the stream. So more of the rain ends up in the stream. And in a lot of the situations in our urban creeks that we have, what you see is that when it rains, the uh, the creek overflows. And so instead of going down into the groundwater, um, it and being absorbed, and even a lot of the pollution could be absorbed before it gets into the creek. It goes right into the creek, but then it it leaves, and so you don't have the groundwater ab- there able to re um, able to continue to discharge into the creek. So when it's not raining, it's very dry, and when it is raining, it's very wet. So you can imagine. So so we you can imagine that that kind of wreaks habit with wreaks havoc with the habitat in the creek itself, and so all of those macroinvertebrates that I talked about that we use to gauge the quality of the creek, they have a hard time living in a creek that's either scouring out the bottom of the creek because water's flowing so fast, whereas the next day it's almost dry. So it's very hard for, you can imagine, a creature living in that situation. <coughs> Excuse me. So one of the Watershed Council's key message as a result of this is that in order to maintain our watershed's health, we wanna encourage higher density where infrastructure already exists for people and preserve natural areas and and farmland so that those natural areas can continue to provide the ecological services that I mentioned. So they can continue to absorb that rainwater and continue to provide groundwater storage and continue to provide habitat. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the benefits of these natural areas. I already talked about how it, 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 it basically provides flood control, right? And it also provides uh, clean um, groundwater for us to drink, uh, so that's that first one and water supply. Um, but it also it provides erosion control, and and I won't list all of them. But we it cycles nutrients so that our farmland and our soils can stay fertile. Um, Pollinates there's pollination of crops and other plants that are in these natural areas. Pest control. Uh, forest and food products, wildlife habitat. I talked about recreation, just the biodiversity, having that biodiversity for the next time there's some kind of disaster, you never know Um, what a genetic um, genetic store is going to be available to help us through. Um, And so we need to protect our natural areas so that we can continue to uh, benefit from these uh, ecosystem services. We actually did a study to kind of get uh, and figure out, you know, what is the actual value of these natural areas. And this particular study only looked at the um, the areas right along the river. So it didn't take the, all the natural areas of the watershed into account. And even so, you can see some pretty big numbers here in terms of providing actual economic value of these natural areas. Um, in You know, in addition to just local jobs from recreational value, from property values, you know, when you live next to a river or a, water, or a waterway, that increases your property value. Um, but there's economic value derived from that biological diversity, from that flood protection. Um, and so this was just one study. What I'd like to do is do a study that includes the natural areas throughout the watershed. So to give you a little taste of, um, you know, this isn't just waving your arms and talking about how wonderful trees are. So we're actually getting benefit from these natural areas. So what we want to see in terms of maintaining the Huron River's water quality is the number one thing we need to do, it's kind of like a pyramid situation, is protect those natural areas, and I would argue farmland as well, um, so that you don't have to go back and reinvent the wheel. Uh, or fix problems, right? So if those natural areas continue to do what they're doing for free to keep our water quality high, um, that seems to me to be the simplest thing. Well, we do have to have development. We do have people want to live places and move places. So uh, number two would be when you do have that development, you want to design it in a way so that you're not converting those natural areas uh, um, to development in any way. You know, you want to be as uh, conservative as you can about compactly creating habitat for the people and keeping those impervious surfaces as low as possible. So why not? Why have such wide roads? Why have such big houses? Why spread out into large lawns? Uh, let's um, use as little land as possible per sort of household. And then number three, once you do create um create your development, you can use human-made green infrastructure. So things like rain gardens, um, uh, native landscaping in your lawn, uh, green rooftops, all of those things are called green stormwater infrastructure because they're kind of recreating the ecological services that you were, that you had to convert. Um, so that's how that's kind of our the way we prioritize the, uh, the policies that we are promoting. Another way of looking at it is is that we are working with our local governments to determine where development happens. We'd like it to keep happening in areas where we already have the development uh, and keep those natural areas natural. And then once development happens, we want to have control over how it happens. So the slide on the left, the picture on the left, is is a visualization of a new development going in next to the county rec area called Viridian development. That's going to be densely uh, populated. It'll have rain gardens, solar panels. It's next to a transit stop. It's in the city. So this is the kind of development that we would like to see, not necessarily so much large lot, using up a lot of land, needing to have an automobile to get everywhere, that kind of development. You mentioned that I also work to train residents to be advocates in their local governments. As I mentioned, we have 67 different local governments in our watersheds, and each of the lo- those local governments have control over where the development goes in there. In their community, uh, each of those local governments has a local elected board, city council, a board of trustees, what have you, and so those are the people who make those decisions. So we have what we call our changemakers boot camp, where we um, we talk to people about the what I just talked to you about the connection between land use and water quality how local governments fit in and how they could be um, it either just valued advisors to the local government, you know be residents who uh, comment to their local governments, be on their planning commission, uh, be uh, elected officials. More about our Changemakers program, we have a, a helpful workbook that goes with that Changemakers program that talks about um, what's in a zoning ordinance, what's in master plan. And so if you go on our webpage, what, HRWC change makers, you you will find a nice handy guide to to what I'm talking about. Okay, so we have had many successes um, in protecting the water. So um, the Huron, like I mentioned before, is the only river in Southeast Michigan designated um, as a natural river. And so that runs from Kent Lake up in uh, Oakland County Uh, down to Barton Pond. And it goes up a few tributaries such as Arms Creek in Webster Township and Mill Creek um, in Dexter, and also parts of Davis Creek, which is in Green Oak Township. And so this provides protection from non-point source pollution by um, creating natural area buffers along the river corridor. So you can't develop within 120 feet of the river within that area. This is something we would actually like to see throughout the whole river, and in all of the tributaries. And so we're working with our local governments to see if we can get that kind of protection. And then we also have a wealth of recreational and sport fishing opportunities. Um, Like I said, we have our water trail and we have our um, river up programs. If you go on our website, you can uh, find out the best places to go paddling. And we're home to a lot of threatened and endangered wildlife. This is the Northern Mad Tom. Which is a species of catfish that uses venom to defend itself against predatory fish. So that's pretty neat. Also, the snuffbox mussel. Um, the river was actually really um, well known as a button. Uh, they made a lot. They made a lot of buttons out of these mussels, uh, and so we actually have quite a few threatened and endangered mussels in the Huron River. And the rarest orchid in Michigan is probably the eastern prairie fringed orchid, and we have this in our watershed. At least shrew. Um just because it's cute is why we have this one in here. So that's also in our watershed and threatened. Topic is the Massasaga rattlesnake, uh, is also um in our watershed. And um there's still several healthy populations throughout the state. And um this is and only true. And then another success I wanted to talk about is uh in Dexter. Uh, They were able to remove a dam. This is uh, dammed up Mill Creek and there used to be the mill pond down there. And they, uh, I don't know if anyone's been down in Dexter in the last, I mean, this is old now, but this is almost 10 years ago where they removed it. It's just beautiful down there. They were able to create a community park, we have a gathering space. Um, And then we've done a lot of, have a lot of success in green stormwater infrastructure, which I mentioned. We have several successful projects um, to install green stormwater infrastructure to help uh, absorb that polluted runoff. Um, I already talked about the changemakers put camp, so that's something that that people can do if they want to be more involved, but also... Uh, Volunteering, I mentioned we have a lot of volunteers and Janet's going to talk about one of our volunteer programs and our our school program. Uh, Donating, of course, Um, I think several of you are members of the Watershed Council, thank you very much. But uh, one thing you can explore is becoming a member, uh, because this is how we get to do these things is through our membership. And then daily actions, you can all do picking up pet waste, um, using zero phosphorus fertilizers. if you use any fertilizer, even, um, I don't I do not do anything to our lawn. Um, using a take back program for your prescriptions, being careful with home toxics. Um, so all of these things, you know, we can all do so much just around the house to help the watershed. And if you're a little more ambitious, you can get involved in your local government. Um, so thanks for your time and, um, head to the hrwc.org, that's our website. We have all the information I talked about and more on there. And that's it for
3: me. Thank you so much, Chris. Next up we have Janet. Um, I'm Janet Collin and I've been a volunteer with the Huron River Watershed Council for about 25 years. Uh, my current role is leading the school outreach program. I got involved with this program about 10 years ago uh, it was started by a wonderful volunteer named Dave Wilson. He has since passed away. Generally, teachers contact the Heron River Watershed Council looking for information or programs. And once we find out what their classes are studying, we work to arrange a date, uh, a location, and the suitable activities. Many of our current teachers have used our program before. Teachers can preview our activities and other resources on the website. During the COVID months, we made videos of most of our activities and posted them on the website um, along for teachers to use, along with question pages and pictures of our posters. We also worked with some local secondary teachers to develop some more complex lessons, comparing data from two streams in our watershed. When we do meet in person, which we were able to do this fall, our volunteer presenters come from a variety of backgrounds. We have retired teachers, professors, fishermen, engineers, college students, summer interns, and other interested locals. We offer trainings for them twice a year. The benthic macroinvertebrates that um, Chris talked about are a very popular activity station. We use these activities to tell the big picture story that you heard from Chris. The story is the Huron River Watershed Council collects samples of water bugs from specific locations in the watershed in order to determine the health of the creeks and the river in our watershed. Certain types of bugs are very sensitive to their conditions. Too much pollution, low oxygen, too hot, too much dirt. So they're good indicators of water quality over time. If the sensitive ones are present, it means that conditions were good for them and their parents and probably their grandparents. The data for these locations is tracked over time. If the numbers are good or improved, that's fine but if the numbers decline, then there's a problem and they have to ask more questions. We choose our activities for students from a variety of indicators of water quality. Parameters such as dissolved oxygen, pH, conductivity, temperature, and turbidity can be indicators of different problems. We use the activities to explain some of the problems faced by the watershed. Turbidity is a good example. Turbidity is a test we use frequently with students. They collect a water sample, then pour it into a turbidity tube while well, one student looks through the column of water trying to see the black and white disc at the bottom. Another student lets out the water. Then they, cond- they calculate the turbidity based on when they can see the disc. So dirt is a big problem in the Huron River watershed. We have to clean it out of our drinking water. Dirt can clog gills and cloud the water. Dirty water holds more heat than clear water. Warm water holds less dissolved oxygen. High water can steal a lot of dirt off the sides and bottom of streams. Since dirt in the water is the big problem, flashy streams are a big problem because they cause erosion. These gutter sections you see help us do some experiments on variables that influence erosion. And right before the pandemic struck, we had just made new ones where we glued a bunch of rocks and sand to the bottom to be even more like the river. So we're gonna try them out this spring. We put older students in waders to measure the volume of the stream. The waders are very popular and they get us to the topic of flashiness. So Chris was talking about how flashy is like flash floods. Flashy streams fill up fast during rain events. It's always rained around here, but since Columbus arrived in America, we've been paving our streets and roofing our homes and stores like crazy. We don't want the water to linger in our basements or streets, so we design our infrastructure to rush this water into storm drains and then into the nearest creek. The unintended consequences of this rush means trouble for us, the water, and the creatures that depend on the healthy watershed. We get too much dirt in our water, and the stream beds are changed by these periodic pulses of stormwater. The great news for us as educators is that this is one environmental problem that we don't have to wait for the kids to grow up to solve. The adults already know what to do. We have to slow down our runoff. Catchment ponds, replacing grass with deeper rooted bushes, trees, and other native plants and rain gardens are all potential helpers in this work. Our understanding of environmental education has us thinking we won't get far just telling kids a lot of bad news. We want them to enjoy themselves outdoors, doing interesting things. So we rotate through a few stations so they can get a variety of activities and presenters. When we can, we meet them near a good-looking creek or river. We don't fool ourselves into thinking they'll learn everything we know or even everything we tell them. We hope they'll hear versions of our message over time and that we will have created a little Velcro to stick the next message onto. That being said, we do try to get some feedback on our work. We ask teachers to evaluate their experience with us each time. We ask them to give their students pre and post tests and to share their results with us. In our post surveys, we consistently see students using more specific language to answer questions, such as how do you know if a river is healthy and what do people do that make rivers unhealthy? These survey responses following our educational events demonstrate a greater understanding of the specific strategies communities can employ to protect their river systems. Thank you for listening.
1: Thank you so much, Janet. Okay, uh, now it's time for our last speaker, Diana Kern.
4: We are Legacy Land Conservancy. Who we are is a local nonprofit that's been around about 50 years. And what we do is we work to protect property in Washtenaw, Jackson, and Littleway counties. And we do that in several ways, which I'll go into a little bit today. We are a nonprofit of nine staff and we have two caretakers that actually live and work at one of our um, rustic nature preserves. And we like to say that, you know, legacy, um, doesn't save land, people do. And that's really true. And as Chris and others have talked about, um, it's it's an effort that we do jointly uh, as individuals and organizations to protect land and then water. And when we protect land, um, we're doing it and forever. So we make a forever promise. And I'll talk about that as we move forward. Legacy is one of the um, nationally recognized and accredited land trusts, which does mean that we through an accreditation every three to five years that ensures that as a land trust we're following best practices um, so that that is very important that it's known for us. So why does Legacy protect land and how what's our role in that? So this represents on this graphic this is just Washtenaw County and Legacy does serve the greater Washtenaw, Jackson and Linnaway counties but you can see all the yellow was what land was developed in 1978 and by 2000 you'll see all the dark brown or brown color you'll see how much um, more sprawl that we've experienced just in Washtenaw county and then there's a map that's being updated right now that will show you 2000 till today and it would be really a little overwhelming to see how much land has been developed but um you know, urban sprawl is something that is definitely a concern. Chris talked about that. The pandemic has added to that as more people have been afraid to be in close areas or surrounded tightly by others. There's more of an effort to go find, you know, five or 10 acres on your own and to build there. And Chris covered why that is actually damaging to the water, uh, to the, to the water in general. But the benefits of land conservation are pretty simple. You know, clearly we rely on clean air and we rely on fresh water. Um, It's home for plants and animals, including a lot of endangered species. And if you have read any of the recent scientific studies, especially around bird populations, um, you'll know that we have significant decline in our bird populations. That's due to loss of habitat and loss of water habitat is a big one. And you know, all of us like to enjoy the rural heritage and scenic beauty. Being outdoors has become even more popular during the last couple of years because of the pandemic. And of course, family farms, and that's something that we really work a lot to protect, um, are an important part of our local economies. They're important to our our food, and they're also really a large part of our rural heritage. So what we protect, this is important. Um, Alone, just in uh, Dexter, Silo, and Webster townships in the last many years, we've helped to protect over 1300 acres of land. Slide, let me talk about the types of land that we're trying to help protect. The first obviously is fresh water and Chris talked an awful lot about this. So we like to, um, we kind of use the language Emerald Arc. So for Legacy, um, the greater uh, area where it runs throughout Washtenaw, Jackson and Lunaway County for us is the Emerald Arc. And it's unique because it's headwaters um, for four rivers. It's the headwaters for the Huron, the Upper Grand, the Kalamazoo, and the River Raisin. And um, all of four of these flow into the Great Lakes. And that means, you know, we all have a major responsibility to do what we can to protect this 20% of the planet's fresh water. And that's what is here, 20% of the planet's fresh water in the Great Lakes. So this photo is from one of our protected properties along the River Raisin. It's a very high quality land with lots of stream frontage and super healthy wetlands and home to a lot of diverse types of plants and animals and birds. So preserving this land directly improves water quality downstream by slowing our runoff and removing pollutants from the water before it reaches the river. So this is an example when we're out looking at land to protect and talking to landowners, we um, we evaluate each easement, and I'll talk a little bit more about easements in a minute, but we evaluate each easement for its conservation qualities so that we can, can be assured that as we place conservation easements would stay on the land forever, that this is high quality land. The other thing that Legacy does work to do is to protect our working farms in Michigan. Um, over the last 40 years alone, Michigan farmland's been disappearing at 320 acres a day. So think about that. Um, it's a staggering statistic. In Washtenaw, Littleway and Jackson, it contains some of our most productive farmland that we have in the state. So um, working with farmers who in many cases, um, right now the average age of a Michigan farmer is 63, that continues to go up. Many farmers do not have family members that are interested in taking over the farm. And so they have, they're have they stuck in a place where they're worried about their farms and farming is costly and expensive. And a lot of times uh, developers will come in and, and really want to take farmland out from under them, which farmers are actually very, it's appealing to them clearly because um, what we say is that farmers are land rich and cash poor, cash poor in many places. So Legacy can help by having those conversations with farmers about protecting their farm forever, even after they pass, and so that the new person who purchases the land will actually have to uphold the conservation easement that's in place, and that land will stay in farming or make sure that it's not contributing to sprawl. So I'll talk a little bit more about conservation easements in a minute. Um, But again, farms are an important part of our work. Places to play is another thing that we're always looking at back with preserve. You know, outdoor recreation is now ranked um, as one of the most important things to people who live in Michigan. Um, Clearly tourism supports a lot of jobs in our state, produces a lot for the economy. And we often overlook the natural assets that are right right next to us, you know. Um, So give you an example, many of you are probably familiar with the Waterloo recreation area. And the legacy has helped to protect land in and around that area. And we're actually working on a project right now on a fin, which is a type of water, type of a water quality um, land aspect called the fin. And we're working on that. And it's right next to the Waterloo Recreation Area. But that is the third largest park in Michigan. It has over 21,000 acres and it's critical to water filtration and actually to. outdoor recreation and camping. Um, So we are um, very proud that we have preserved places like the Beckwith Preserve, which adds to outdoor recreation and water quality. So let's talk a little bit about how Legacy protects land. Um, Land conservation groups can be confusing for some, but it's pretty basic. So we achieve conservation really in three ways. First, we own our own nature preserves. This is land that's usually been donated or provided to us at a, at a, um, a reduced price or sale. But in most cases, it's a donated um, piece of land. And that someone either gives us during their lifetime or they leave us this land and their trusts or wills when they pass on. And um, you know, we manage these, this land as rustic preserves so we're not like a public park you're not gonna find paved parking lots or restroom facilities. They are actually managed to be rustic rustic in nature and we will hold on to those pieces of land forever. So there's an example, this is the Rikert Nature Preserve. Um, Rikert is just 10 minutes from Legacy's offices and it was donated by Dr. Rudy Rikert back in 2012. We own the land, we manage it as a preserve um, and this is one of six, but we now have seven preserves And in most cases, um, uh, we rarely—I will say this again—we rarely buy land. We prefer to get it instead uh, donated to us, so that um, uh, you know we can, as a nonprofit, we can uh, use funds that we collect to then restore the properties. And that's one thing that we try to do is restore, caring for the land. So this is habitat. We do habitat restoration. If any of you have ever been out to Johnson Preserve, you'll know that that. We do a project with uh, uh, out there where we've done a a prairie restoration. It's brought the land back to its natural state. Um, Preserving land forever comes with the promise to take care of it forever. And that's what we do. Um, And so we also on all properties that we are involved with whether it's our own preserves or a conservation easement, we also monitor those every year. And we go out with over a hundred different volunteers that work for us to care for the land and we do photo monitoring where we go to photo points using GIS mapping that lets us see what changes have taken place on that land over time. It also makes sure that we can uphold the conservation easements, by ensuring that there's been no types of violations, things like dumping or other issues that might affect the quality of that land. Um, It's very satisfying to uh, watch land over time and to help remove invasive species and to return habitat to a much more um, natural quality or natural um, place that it should be restored to. And we couldn't do all that work without all of the wonderful volunteers that we have that help us. Um, We achieve the second way that we achieve conservation is we assist partners who protect land. And this is really, really important because as a nonprofit, we have limited amounts of funding, but we have lots of expertise. Um, We have lots of staff expertise and a lot of board expertise. So what we can do is we can look at a project when someone comes to us and make a decision about what's the best approach. Sometimes the best option might be us, but other times it's in somebody else's wheelhouse. An example of that might be the City of Ann Arbor's Greenbelt Program, the Washtenaw County Natural Preservation Program, or one of the townships in the area that have a millage-based land protection program. So what we'll do is look who's the best. We don't care if we're not the best person to preserve or protect that land, but we'll work with all the others to figure out who is the best. So The, what the ultimate goal is of, of protecting that land and therefore protecting water quality. And this is an example, Osborne Mills Preserve. If any of you have been there, it's one of my favorite places to go in the spring because there tends to be a great horned owl that, that um, nests there along the river and has uh, young every year, fudges at least two young every year there. It was one of our first projects in 1980. And that was a partnership example where we partnered with the o- Washtenaw Audubon Society and also the um, Nature Conservancy's Midwest chapter to raise the funds that were needed to purchase this. And it is now transferred to the Washtenaw County Parks and Recreation Department. They own it and they operate it because they're better uh, in a better position to be able to do that. The last way that we achieve conservation is the thing that we're probably most known for. And that's through a conservation agreement. The legal term is called a conservation easement, okay? And these are done either, these are done by private landowners. So a landowner who has some land that they care a lot about um, that they don't want to see their descendants um, uh, cut it up into pieces or to build on it or to not be sure what happens to it when they pass or for other reasons they'd like to have that land be in a conservation agreement or easement and that is done either by a landowner who donates part of that cost the value or through what we call a bargain sale and if, um, I'll try to explain this a little bit more to you so um, think about um, a good example is, again, the farmer that wants to place a conservation easement. And what they're agreeing to do is give up some rights on that property. So they're agreeing that it's going to stay in farming forever. So it's not going to be sold to a developer, and it will never be sold to a developer, but it will stay in farming. And when they do that, they are giving up some of their, their rights as a landowner, and that, that is laid out in the conservation agreement or easement documents that document stays with the project, the property forever. So even when that landowner sells, the new person who purchases, part of what they have to agree to or they're agreeing to is the terms inside that conservation easement, which are things like not cutting down the trees, um, not um, um, damming over or eliminating um, uh, water, on wetlands on the property, lots of different things. It's all laid out in those conservation easements, which we engage in with the landowner. We have some wonderful attorneys that help us um, with all that language and working with owners to get to a closing. And that again, stays on that property forever, but the landowner continues to own and use their land. It's just they're agreeing to things that they cannot do in order to uphold those conservation easements uh, on that property. Legacy has almost 100 conservation easements in place. We've protected over 10,000 acres of land that will be protected forever. Whether whether it's a farm or along a river or a wetlands or a fin or a beautiful oak forest, um, we have over 10,000 acres of land that are now um, in private hands but are conserved forever. So just real quick, um, how you might get involved, come out and get involved with us, come out to one of our events, go on a hike, um, volunteer, be a photo monitor, Um, anything that you like to do outside, generally you can find us engaged in. And we would love if you are interested to just go ahead and contact us by going on our website and sending us an email through our website. Um, Again, we also are always out in the community, we're doing tabling. So if you're one of those kinds of people that likes to get out and and um, and go out and go to things like the, the uh, plant sales or other events in the community. And you'd like to go there and represent legacy with a table of information that helps people learn what conservation easements are, how they might protect their land, the benefits that they might get from protecting their land. There are some financial benefits that are involved in conservation easements. Um, and those are something that we love to talk about with people all the time. If you know of people who are interested in exploring conservation easements and talking about them, please give us a call. Again, all conservation easements do help because they create connectivity corridors and they filter water. And we all care about having uh, that our water be protected and being filtered. So thank you all for letting me be here with you today. I hope you got something um, interesting and fun out of it.
1: Uh, yeah, thank you so much, the three, all three of you for sharing your um, activities and your expertise with us. Um, I have a few questions that came in, one, the first one is kind of a long one. Um, and it starts with this, it says, most people's main concern about water is whether they can expect clean, safe water when they turn on their tap and a water bill they can afford. Today, water service to Michigan residents is making the news due to failing treatment plants and so forth. Um, And then there are issues of aquifer contamination, bottled water being shipped out of state, and so forth and so on. So the uh, question is, um, has the HRWC um, been involved in any planning or discussion on public water systems and treatments? And um, perhaps, I think this is a really pretty complicated question or a big question, but are there any statewide efforts to look at the overall water issue?
2: Yes, so actually, um, HRWC is in, in been in meetings with the city's uh, utility, they are going to be revising their source water protection plan, which is the plan that they, they have to have by uh, federal and state law uh, to to address all those issues so they're going to be doing their drinking water plant um, upgrades and um, where we're going to be involved in like we don't know so much about how pipes are built and stuff like that but but we're going to be involved in having them take a, encouraging them to take a look at that source water like what's happening up in the watershed so that they can do that prevention, right? That bottom of the pyramid I talked about. Um, instead of having to fix everything after you've ruined it, let's prevent it from getting. Let's prevent the next PFAS from getting in the water, and then and and, and then speaking a little bit about a lot of the legislation that's come through both for uh, from. Um, What's the name of the big pandemic we're having? (laughs) The CARES CARES Act, the money that came out of that, and also the the bipartisan infrastructure bill that was passed. And hopefully the Build Back Better bill, it has a lot of money in it for local governments to upgrade their infrastructure. So uh, we're going to be, there's a lot of talk about that in all the local governments. And the state of Michigan does have a statewide planning process where they're looking at all of this water infrastructure. So I just, when I read about places like Flint and then latest, the latest articles that I read about Benton Harbor is just makes me so angry to see that happening in this country and in the state where we have all this clean, fresh water and people are being contaminated. It's really unconscionable. Um, so I, I'm really hoping we can, get that fixed quicker than we've been getting it fixed and then prevent more of that from happening. All right, yeah. Um, Shelley, can I
4: add a little on to that?
2: Sure, yeah.
4: Yeah, I was just on a, a meeting with the League of Conservation Voters um, last night, and actually we also had um had Debbie Dingle was there as well. So now, Legacy, even though we're focused on land conservation, we're, we care a lot about these, these topics that, um, that others are working on so so dramatically. So what I would say is, what we try to do is do our part by paying attention to legislation that's out going on. And I would also say that that Debbie Dingle's office right now is doing a ton on all these bills that are going through the state on water quality. And you can get some information downloaded. Um, so we do we send in our support and we try to do what we can as a small nonprofit working on land protection. But we all can do our part. We all
1: can do our part that kind of I'm going to jump a little uh, ahead to a question, because you kind of reminded me of something there that uh, we did have a question. um, on How can Washtenaw County residents best contribute to our watersheds health top three tips, perhaps, and as voters, sometimes uh, our speakers, you know, have specific, um, you know, laws or, or, you know. uh, efforts to, you know, that are good for voters to do, keeping in mind who our elected representatives are and how they should be doing what we ask them. So do you have some recommendations there? Any of you?
2: I do. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't know if I'm speaking for the Watershed Council or just myself as an informed person. Uh, I would definitely keep calling your senators about Build Back Better. Um, that's gotta be passed, especially for the climate provisions. Um, and then there's a filter first bill in the state legislature right now. So just um, giving them, like if you, I think if you Google Michigan Environmental Council, they'll probably have the basic information about that bill on there. So, but that would require schools to filter water first before, at, or, or I think. And so anyway, it would require to, Filter lead out from the water so we could stop with this contaminating our children. Filter first, Michigan the Michigan legislature. Yeah.
4: Yeah, good. Thank you, Chris. That's one I was going to mention. House Bill 4123, everybody just look that one up. Thank you. Um, and I'm not going to go into more on, you know, during now, but please look up House Bill 4123 in the Michigan legislature. Um, that'll lead you to to some other things that you as a voter and as someone who's concerned can participate in.
1: Hey, super. Um, another question we had was, um, and I think, you know, I, I saw a little bit about this as I was doing my own research, but uh, what is the, where would you say we're going with the situation with plastics and PFAS in our waters?
2: Plastics is a Kind of a up in the air. There aren't there isn't a lot of legislation. There's it's a little early in knowing what the impacts are to human health. We know it's everywhere. Like this is microplastics I'm talking about. So so any kind of products we use almost has some sort of plastic in it, and it degrades into a smaller piece of plastic, which then degrades into a small, but it never actually degrades all the way. And so we're finding you know, high levels of plastics in the stomachs of all of our wildlife and our people and people and in the blood, in our blood. So uh, we don't know what it's doing. (laughs) We, We don't know necessarily what it's doing to us. We know that there are a lot of emerging issues and also things like hormones and some of the medications we take, it goes right into the, when you flush it or when you go through your system, it goes into the wastewater treatment system And that also is persistent in the environment. So these are issues that are emerging. Now with PFAS, there's been some strong legislation. Thanks again to Debbie Dingle and and, uh, Alyssa Slotkin um, in our legislature uh, that's coming through. Michigan's kind of been a leader on this, which has been great. Um, Of course, we've been hit with it. and so there is action on that, and I'm not the PFAS person in our office, but um, the watershed council has been very active with advocating for uh, strong. Like before this came up, what two or three years ago, there wasn't even a there were there were like advisory levels of PFAS, and first and then when I say PFAS, there's dozens and dozens of different kinds mm-hmm. of PFAS, and they all had sort of different levels of what the EPA was suggesting that water treatment plants kept an eye on and what dischargers kept an eye on kind of, it was all very opaque. And now we actually have some limits put in. So that's been good. Um, But it's like you mentioned, it's re-emerging, right? So we had got the PFAS levels down for a while, and now we're still seeing it. We are not sure where it's coming from.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll try and find, I'll post a link to an article, a very good article actually in the Michigan Daily about um, Ann Arbor's water pollution in its drinking water, including PFAS. But
2: uh, they in even, the- there was even a consideration, I think, in my opinion, thank goodness they didn't go for it, of changing the city's drinking water supply from the Huron. Where would they have gone? To the Great Lakes system, which is the Detroit River, the upper mm-hmm. upper part of the Detroit River. Just okay. like Flint, right? So Flint was on the Great Lakes water system, the Detroit system. It's called okay. the Great the Great Lakes Water Utility or something like that. And and they get they have two intakes, one by Lake St. Clair and another one further downstream. Um, and, and Flint changed their, their water source to the Flint River, and we all know what happened then. Mm. Uh, now they've changed back, but the Huron is getting its water from the Huron. And it's been fine, it's been great. We have really good water. Um, but because of these PFAS concerns, there was some talk about, would we change and get, get, go tie into that system?
1: hmm that's interesting because i think actually sino township where i reside i think that they do get
2: their water from the detroit water System. no they get it, it from that. they get it from the from ann arbor system oh they do okay yes right. pittsfield township which is the township just south of ann arbor gets when it has some public water and sewer and that is from no it's yeah. it's the sewer sorry it's that's from the ypsilanti system that's from a different system i see okay well
1: um that actually brings me to one of the questions uh it says for chris olson has there been any engagement with pittsfield township and i guess with regard to you know preserving the huron watershed so uh
2: yes what's what's pittsfield township is a part of the green belt that mm-hmm. Diana mentioned, so there are areas within Pittsfield that are within that boundary, so the, so the, so the Greenbelt program will, um, will look at areas within Pittsfield to preserve. Um, we have a member of the Watershed Council on their, I think it's their stormwater committee, mm-hmm. uh, and I actually was just in a meeting with, with the Pittsfield supervisor and some other local government officials about climate. Mm-hmm. um doing uh, having a regional approach to what we're going to do about what local governments can do about climate and um they are engaging in a master planning process right now so every local government has to have a master plan and it has to be updated every five years so Pittsfield Township is engaged in revising that right now so now's a really good time to get involved if any of you are from Pittsfield mm-hmm. uh, to get involved with that uh because that's your 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 opportunity to say, this is to look at it and see what you think they're doing and what they could be doing to preserve more natural areas down there.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, you had mentioned also that, um, something that interested me was, uh, you mentioned that in Dexter, they removed the dam mm-hmm. um, and they've turned it into a nice area. And I wondered what some of the pros and cons are considering mm-hmm. you have seven dams on the main, Yeah. The mainstream of the Huron here yep. in Washington County. So, what are, um, you know, yeah, are there any that's, risks for, for
2: example, of any of our dams having a massive failure such as? Well, this? that's there's a couple of great points you bring up. One is, what are the pros and cons of dam removal? So, just strictly as an environmental ecologist, I say, take them, take them all down because we're we we. we that's not a river system anymore you're creating a lake system and not a very good lake system because it's not i mean lakes have their own ecology but at any at any rate we can't really remove all the dams because there are many reasons why people put them there in the first place one is hydropower hydropower is is carbon free um none of our dams really some of our dams provide power but it's not really we don't really have the drop like in out west where they have they're providing massive amounts of power so that's not a huge issue. Recreation is probably the biggest issue as to why we have these dams so. Um, in the Mill Creek situation out in Dexter it wasn't really providing any recreation anymore the pond was just filling up with sediment which is what an impoundment will do. Um, and so it loses its recreational benefits. Um, one, one issue you need to really think about if, in, if you're thinking about removing a dam is, is the sediments that have built up. They could be contaminated. They could have some of that legacy pollution that I talked about. So lots of studies need to be done. So they spent a lot of time and money um, investigating the property ownership of the pond behind the dam, what was in the soils, what would happen if they removed the dam, excuse me, what happens downstream. Where does that sediment go? It goes down into the river. So it has to be done carefully. It has to be done with a lot of consideration. There's a um, currently in Ipsilanti. there are studies going on in terms of removing that peninsular paper dam that I showed a picture of early. Um, and so if people are interested in that, that um, that's ongoing. And so they're in the midst of determining those pros and cons. One con would be the people living along the impoundment now wouldn't have a lake anymore. So that might be concern you. Um, Another. um, And so the other issue is the contamination there could be contaminants in that underwater there. So that has to be um, have to consider that what does the community want? Does the community want that pond? Would they rather have river recreation or would they rather have pond or lake related recreation? There was talk about removing the Argo dam. So that's that's where our offices are, that Argo Pond. Um, but people use that area for the rowing team and things like that. So there was opposition to that. And it, it doesn't, that didn't happen. Now you have the cascades through there. Um so I'll have to wait and see on that one. So it depends. Each dam is different.
1: Yeah. So what do you think about that cascade? Does that is that a reasonable compromise or
2: mm? depends on who you ask on staff. <laughs> 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 I love it personally. I think it's really fun and it's nice it gets people to the river and it might not be the you know the native river but it gets people to the river which is important so yeah. it provides a great way to for people to look on the river as a resource
3: right. and
2: and people to enjoy in city recreation which is great for that sort of key message piece I had talked about in terms of yeah. you know getting people to stay and live in higher density areas and appreciate that so but on the other hand, it's a totally artificial system and it's relies on i assume it would rely on that Argo pond staying there right and that Argo pond is not really providing many ecological it's it's a you know it's gonna eventually fill up with sediment and it'll have to be something will have to be done yeah. anyway so yeah. okay um I had a question too about um
1: there's been a lot of talk about, like for parking lots and stuff, water permeable surfaces. Yeah. Yep. What What are
4: they? In That's the r- thing.
2: It's yeah, a thing. permeable permeable pavement. It's uh out, the university has used quite a few of those. Um, the parking lot on where my husband parks on Packard and Hill or Thompson. There's that little triangular parking lot there. That's all permeable pavement. And there's several several parking lots and roads where they use permeable pavement. So mm-hmm. it's an effective way. Yes, oh, oh that's good news. Yep. Yeah, it is. It's expensive. I assume it's more expensive than just slapping asphalt on there. But um, Fourth Ave in downtown Ann Arbor. So in 2014, there was a huge flood due to, personally, climate change, uh, and they reconstructed it with permeable. Either permeable pavement, or they have more areas where the the water can go down into the ground. There,
1: interesting. Okay, all right. Um, okay, so I was uh, stunned. I think this was Diana's statistic, maybe that um, three hundred and twenty acres of farmland disappear every day. Is that mm-hmm. in Michigan? Do I is that in Michigan or is that nationwide? I think you said Michigan. Would,
4: um, it's that's in Michigan. Three hundred twenty acres of farmland in Michigan. Wow. I, I mean, that, that's just astounding. Yeah. Yes, it's horrible. <laughs> but, you know, when you think of, the, we understand, most of us understand why, right? The aging farmer, um, land rich and cash poor, and trying to um, figure out their futures. And, and um, you know, developers will pay quite a bit for land that can be rezoned. So, yeah. Um, You know, so we always say at Legacy that there's land that should be developed and there's land that we could try to to protect that shouldn't be developed. It's kind of what Chris said. And being a bit more strategic and a bit more um, collaborative in how we look at the uh, reduction of our farmland and what that does to uh, animal habitat and corridors and water quality. And that just doesn't happen as much. But I will say it's people like the Huron River Watershed Council, and Legacy, and others that are getting out and talking to townships and cities during their master planning, to talk about these types of discussions, so that hopefully, um, other than just tax based concerns, that municipalities are thinking um, longer term.
1: We uh, a couple a month or two ago we had uh, no I'm blocking his name, but we had a gentleman from um, Michigan State extension speaking to us about the use of farmland and so the you know farm and solar it's not a zero sum game I think was the title of his talk and I found it really fascinating that um, uh, he was saying there can be you know quite a a productive um, symbiosis I guess you'd call it between those two and um, so that a farmer might be able to hold on to his land and be doing some kind of farming underneath it is that in, is that does that fall under your purview as well, you guys? Or?
4: We're certainly well aware of it, and we we'll, we've been involved in conversations about it. We don't have any conservation easements in our under our care right now that have um, solar panels, but it's not to say that in the right conditions in the right locations um, that it's not great. And there are lots of farmers in Michigan that are doing things like pollinator um, planting yes. and things of that nature. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Diana, do you have, have you guys talked about it in terms of your conservation easement? Like if you were going to work with a farmer, would that be in the contract of that you're not allowed to put solar panels on or that you are? No, or?
4: no. we would talk to the, to the farmer if they're considering doing solar panels, because that's some stuff that we'd have to negotiate together in terms of the conservation easement. But we're certainly open to it. You know, it just hasn't come up yet for us, okay. but we're very open to it
2: i'm on the ann arbor township board of trustees and we have also a millage program for farmland preservation and this has been talked about with with and they're they're more concerned they're more yep. wanting to make sure that they're preserving the farmland and that the installation of salt solar panels doesn't reduce the use of farmland so yeah, it's
4: complicated
3: but quite there interested farmers,
4: in yeah there are farmers that have areas of naturally occurring low area that doesn't really have a lot of productivity for their farm. So it's it's really about the level of how many panels need to go in and how much farmland. Um, mm-hmm. And again, if we could go in, I mean it, it's a long topic, but Chris is yeah. certainly topic we'd be happy to talk yeah. more with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And then I know there's also a lot of talk going into the um, promoting farmland as a way of promoting carbon sequestration. And so um, that's another way farmers could, could get some, um, some payment for, right. for good carbon farmland. It t- tends to be, from what I can tell, the, that water, watershed-friendly agricultural practices also tend to be regenerative and the type that would sequester carbon. And so right. we have a program where we work with farmers to do what we call pay for performance so, so they, the farmers will put in, um, put in practices that uh, don't result in phosphorus pollution and erosion and things. They get paid for that by the uh, Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. Uh, well, that you could even you could also put in values for the carbon sequestration. So you have all these communities now, like University of Michigan, City of Ann Arbor who have this carbon neutral net zero pledge or root law. So how are they gonna get there? They can't necessarily solar panel the whole campus.
3: Uh, <laughs> uh, they can't
2: solar panel their way out of it. So they're gonna to have to buy some offsets or they're gonna to have to somehow net zero out their, their carbon uh, greenhouse gas emissions by possibly maybe it, purchasing that um, a carbon absorption. So that maybe they're emitting some carbon still even though they're trying hard to reduce it Whatever is left over, they can sort of purchase farmland. Well, purchase the conservation easement, maybe that then gets them the amount of carbon that they they would then sequester.
1: Yeah, I think our our speaker in October, the gentleman who did the ag and solar um, uh, would talk, he mentioned that you know a lot of the plants that grow, like if they're they're growing stuff for pollinators and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Those plants have very deep roots, which you know only help with the carbon sequestration and so forth. Um, if people are interested, uh, I'll probably post it on Facebook. But the, they can go to our uh, uh, our website and go out to our YouTube channel. And the video of that talk is out there. It was very interesting. Anyway, I see we're we're kind of at the end of our time, and I just again I want to thank you guys so much. It was such a pleasure. to um, to learn about everything you're doing. And um, I saw somebody put in the comments that this was a uh, good places to make my year-end donations. And um, I second that heartily as a private citizen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, so I would like to thank you so much for joining us. And I would like to also... um, Shout out to, uh, well, I would like to thank you for joining us, and we're going to post some more links for uh, as we have them for a deeper dive into this topic at our website, lwvwashtenaw.org. And a recording of this meeting will be posted on our YouTube channel, and you'll see that announced on our website and on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Finally, we would like to thank, with, from the bottom of our hearts, the three members of the League's Environmental Advocacy Group, Sandra Sereni, elser Vicki Paulison, and Kathy Weinman for their essential help in putting our series on climate justice together. We would like to thank current members of the League of Women Voters for your support. If you're not yet a member, consider joining the League to support the essential work of protecting the right of every citizen to vote. Check out our website, lwbwashtenaw.org, for how to join. Stay safe, stay well, and stay informed and active in your government. Thank you very much, everybody.